It's Wednesday, August 29th, and this is The Daily Dive. There's a shocking new trend happening as the opioid crisis continues to spread all over the country. Pet owners are abusing their own animals to get drugs, and it's causing changes in the way vets prescribe and administer painkillers to animals. Beth Warren, reporter for the Louisville Courier-Journal, joins us to talk about the new warnings from the DEA and the FDA and the story of a woman who cut her dog with razors looking for tramadol. Next, California has passed a bill that will no longer require people arrested for crimes to post bail to be released from jail while awaiting their day in court. According to Governor Jerry Brown, California has reformed its bail system so that rich and poor alike are treated fairly. Melody Gutierrez, reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, joins us to talk about when this new law will take effect and how it will all work. Finally, summer is over and autumn is here. Starbucks has released a pumpkin spice latte a week early this year, marking the unofficial start to the fall season. The pumpkin drink has been around now for 15 years. Caitlin Mensa, reporter for Mike, joins us to talk about the return of PSL and also how much money it has made for Starbucks. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We're now losing more than a person a day to a fatal overdose on average. It's just devastating, and it's in every zip code. That's why I was at a a DEA conference recently when I heard about the pets being abused, and I just couldn't believe it. So I was very disheartened to hear it, but I thought we needed to jump on it and get the word out. Joining us now is Beth Warren, reporter for the Louisville Courier-Journal. We all know that the opioid crisis is raging all over America This story specifically strikes to the heart of a lot of pet owners. This crisis is now reaching your pets in the form of people abusing their animals in hopes to get some pain medications that they can then take away and use themselves. Beth, you talk about a a resident named Heather Pereira and what she went through to try to get some drugs for herself. That was a Kentucky case. She had like a beautiful dog named Alice that was a golden retriever mix. She finally admitted to using her husband's straight razor and intentionally cutting the dog. And she did this multiple times to get a narcotic. And it's changing the way that veterinary schools and veterinarians approach the whole thing because they're teaching them now to look out for warning signs of a person possibly abusing their animals so that they can obtain the opioids and the painkillers. Right. I talked to Auburn University and they train Kentucky's next vets and they are aware that the potential for abuse is real. And so they talk to them about trying to spot signs such as if the animal doesn't exhibit a limp and the owner says the animal has a limp or they may press on the area that's supposed to be sore to test to see if they see a pain response. Sometimes they'll decide maybe a pain reliever is needed, but not a narcotic. They may just give something less strong. And then they'll ask the pet owner to sign a waiver to allow them to look at medical history of the pet. If they don't do that, some won't treat because that could be a potential sign of doctor shopping. So there's some things they're learning to do so that when they become vets, they will be more aware of this problem. When people are desperate and they need these drugs, they feel they need these things, they're going to go to any lengths to get them. A lot of doctors have a database available to them to search to see if people are doing this kind of doctor shopping stuff. Maybe they've been prescribed opioids and painkillers recently, and you know maybe they're back at another doctor trying to get them again. There's nothing like this for veterinarians, is there? In Kentucky, we do have what you're talking about, the database. If I, as a patient, was going and trying to get more opioids, they could tell that I was at a doctor's office last week getting opioids. Now I'm back trying to get more. 
So they can tell for people, but the problem with a pet is the pet is technically the patient. So in Kentucky, at least, the vet cannot check those records because the person who's getting the drug is the pet owner. They're the one filling the prescription. There's no way to check to see. And the pet owner could just change the dog's name. You know, they could say it's bought at one clinic and it's Sparky at another one. So there's really no way because unlike with a patient, you can get a DOB, social, and, you know, you can check. But they wish they had this tool. I've talked to some vets who said they do, you know, it would be helpful, but no way to do that kind of a search. It's an interesting thing reading in this story about the woman, Heather, and what she was trying to get. She was trying to get tramadol. I just had a situation with my dog. He was a French bulldog. We took him to the vet. He had some pain. They prescribed him some pain medication. I didn't know exactly what it was at the time. And she was going over the medication. She's like, oh, this is for his heart. This is for the pain. She's like, this is the good stuff. They give it to humans. And it kind of clicked in my ear. And I, I went back and I saw it. And it's called tramadol. Two weeks later, I had another friend come over who said she just picked up her prescription from the pharmacist for a hand injury that she had. And she had the same thing, the same tramadol, same milligram dosage, everything. It was the exact same thing. And I didn't really know that they prescribed the same type of medications to pets as they did to humans. I I just assumed human and, and dog that they would be prescribed some different type of medications. Yeah, I'm with you. I wouldn't have really known that either, but there are a few drugs that are used in humans and animals for pain relief. Obviously, it's not going to be as strong as a heroin high or meth or cocaine. So people who are addicted to those heavy drugs like that, that wouldn't suffice for them. But for people who may be abusing pills, this is definitely a real threat. And in the end, how was Heather caught? Reading through the article, it's akin to almost trying to spot child abuse or something. They said that these cuts didn't look like they happened naturally and she was lying about how she obtained the injury, basically. The cuts were very aligned, so they seemed too neat and in a straight line. And they didn't buy the excuses she gave for the injury. Like one of them was the dog was laying under the car, which seems really weird for a dog of that size. And the injury was on the side, not the back. So that just didn't make sense. The injuries just didn't seem consistent to the vet. And he also noticed that she'd been there three times within a couple of months with cut injuries to this dog. So that just seemed like how many times this dog's getting cut. And the last time the owner specifically asked for trauma at all, which wow. was a red flag. Yeah. And as we said, they, so. they're they teaching veterinarians to look out for these warning signs. All those things are specifically what they're telling them. If they make specific requests, if the stories just don't add up, it might be somebody that's trying to abuse the drugs. Thank you very much for joining us, Beth. You guys there at the Courier Journal are actually doing a series of stories on the opioid epidemic that's happening. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, we've got a team that has been covering the opioid epidemic for years, and we've pretty much intensified our coverage in the last couple of years. As our city just has gotten hit worse and worse, we're now losing more than a person a day to a fatal overdose on average. It's just devastating, and it's in every zip code. So it's just something that we are trying to do more intensely. And that's why I was at a a DEA conference recently when I heard about the pets being abused and I just couldn't believe it. So I was very disheartened to hear it, but I thought we needed to jump on it and get the word out. Beth Warren, reporter for the Louisville Courier Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. stronger because it will end money bail in California. End of story. It will protect the poor in the process, and it will protect the public in the process. It will replace a flawed, inequitable, unsafe, money-based system with a fairer 
safer system that assesses an individual based on the size of his or her risk, not on the size of his or her wallet. Joining us now is Melody Gutierrez, reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. So on any given day, there's thousands of jailed people in California awaiting trial, awaiting sentencings or hearings. A lot of them are in custody because they can't afford to post bail. And there's new legislation that just passed that fixes that, basically. These people now don't have to, are, they're not required to post bail for these pretrial hearings. What do we know about this bill? What is it called and what does it actually do? Under this bill, this removes money completely from the equation. It says that a person who is arrested will be given a pretrial assessment. That assessment has not been worked out quite yet, but it falls on the county court to create this system. But more people will be released without having to post bail of any kind. Those who are deemed to be some sort of flight risk or a danger to society would be held regardless of whether or not they had millions of dollars to post bail. They could use ankle monitors, if anything, but in the rules, they're, uh, it, it's only going to work if they're not required to pay for that also. So basically, as you said, they're just taking money out of it completely. As long as there is a method in which they can monitor them that does not cost the person who's been arrested anything, then they can do it. So there's there's a lot of different methods that they can look into, whether it be probation, departments monitoring a person, or ankle monitors, or no monitoring at all because they don't think that it's a person who needs that. There's a lot of different ways that they'll be looking at this. But you'll also see quite a, a debate over who should not be released, regardless of what kind of monitor could be established to ensure that they show up. There's a lot of pushback from the bail industry, obviously, which will be eliminated under this law. It basically Um, renders all bail bonds companies and bondsmen irrelevant at that point. Absolutely. I mean, this is a a fairly large industry that will be wiped out in one signing. What's been the reaction of lawmakers opposed to this? I'd obviously passed, so it worked its way through the system. But I had seen that some of the most vocal supporters of the bill were reversing themselves a little bit because they gave a little too much power to the courts, since they're the ones that are going to create these assessments and decide on whether or not they can be released. This is an issue that the ACLU has worked on for years. They have said that bail essentially put too much pressure on poor people to have to post this amount. Too often they're not able to cover the full amount of the bail and so they have to go to a bail bondsman. They post the 10%. That is not money they ever receive back. And yet you have people, so they, those who can't afford it sit in jail and wait until they can be bailed out or they wait for their trial. Whereas somebody who's accused of a far greater, more violent crime who has money can post bail and be out and whether or not that's fair. So, you know, ACLU has pushed this issue in the Capitol for years. And up until the last week of this bill, were one of the main sponsors of it. And when there were changes at the last minute to that amended this bill that essentially put way more power over to the court system to create the pretrial assessment. So it was a lot less guarantee that people who are accused of crimes are not held. And that was something that the ACLU felt very strongly about. It was a bad move. Listen, what they had said is, you know, you're putting the onus in the hands of the court system. And that's a court system that's already had racial bias and disparity issues highlighted in how the justice system carries out. And so that was one of the reasons that they essentially not only just reversed course and said, we don't support it. They said, we don't want lawmakers to approve this. And it was a weird situation because the Alliance of California judges, they're a group of more than 500 judges. They also didn't want this bill to pass. 
they said it was going to muck up the courts and just cause more of a problem. So it's kind of weird that ACLU doesn't want courts to have more power and then the judges themselves didn't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, I mean, the supporters of this bill, lawmakers who voted for it even said, you know, I see serious flaws in this. But their argument was that whether or not the current system is more flawed and that you're keeping it in place just because you don't have a perfect bill. So what they wanted to do was say, we're removing the money from the system entirely. And if it requires us to go back in and make these fixes to ensure that this is free of bias, free of uh, any other issues that could arise, they will do that in subsequent legislative sessions. So when does the bill kick in and uh, who is exempted? Because I know there's some people that right off the bat, they're, they're not going to be able to be eligible for this. The bill will kick in October 1st. 2019. And that's when you're going to see the risk assessment starting to be used. And that will be when you will see people who are accused of misdemeanors that are nonviolent. Those people will be released after being arrested within 12 hours after being booked. And there are exemptions. So that's anybody who maybe they're being arrested for a nonviolent misdemeanor this time, but they have previous violent felony convictions or multiple failures to appear, domestic violence. All of those people would be automatically held. Now, the court system will also create these assessments in addition to that on who is a low, moderate, or high risk. And that's where I think there'll be a lot of eyes on what that system looks like because those who support this want more people out because they're accused of a crime and not convicted. And that's sort of what the system is based on and what due process is about. Melody Gutierrez, reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. A little cinnamon in there, put a little nutmeg in too. It's a pumpkin-y swirl onto a beautiful, beautiful beverage. I love it. I love this time of year. I love pumpkin spice latte. Look, we didn't invent spice. That was Marco Polo. We didn't invent the pumpkin. Probably the Egyptians. What we did do is we introduced pumpkin to spice. Us here, Starbucks. We said, hey, pumpkin, meet spice. Joining us now is Caitlin Mensa, reporter for Mike. It used to be that the end of summer was brought on by those back-to-school sales, Labor Day. But now we know that those are all meaningless. We know that when Pumpkin Spice Latte returns to Starbucks, the uh, autumn season has begun. So that happened on Tuesday. The stores reintroduced it back into the public. Everybody goes crazy. It was trending on Twitter since Monday, I think it was. Caitlin, tell us a little bit about the Pumpkin Spice Latte. When did it start in Starbucks stores? It launched in the fall of 2003. Uh, they first started developing it in the spring. And a couple of years ago, Starbucks actually released on their website a little bit of the story of the development of the PSL and how the product managers were tasked with experimenting and coming up with some seasonal flavors and how they finally stumbled upon the pumpkin spice concept. They experimented back and forth with a little bit more pumpkin or a little bit more spice. And then they landed on this and they didn't change the recipe for a decade. Only recently did they remove some artificial flavors and coloring and that kind of thing, a sign of the times. But otherwise, right. the recipe has not changed. The popularity was there right from the beginning. It was a bestseller right that first season. And that was, they only tested it in a few stores before expanding it nationwide. And it is a great story as, you know, they went into their liquid lab, they call it, and they were trying to come up with something for the fall season and they had the pumpkin pies and all their, uh, you know, espressos and things like that. And what they kept doing was eating a bite of pie and taking a drink of coffee, eating some pie, yeah. drinking some coffee. And they're kind of like, yeah. all right, we're slowly developing something. I think we're on to something. How much have they made so far with the pumpkin spice latte? 
So Starbucks is a public company, so a lot of their information is out there, but we estimated this. We crunched some numbers, the most fun pumpkin <laughs> calculations we have ever done. And we found that, so there have been previous reports, BuzzFeed most recently did a deep dive on the pumpkin spice latte, and they reported that there have been 350 million sold since they launched in 03. The prices have varied over the course of the last 15 years. If we say that the lower end is about $4, that, that would take us to over a billion in sales, 1.4 billion to wow. be exact. In 15 yeah. years that they've had this drink out there. And it's so interesting. You know, I always bring up the example of Taco Bell. They were, I wouldn't say 100% failing company, but they weren't doing so well. And they introduced that Doritos Tacos Loco thing. And it really revitalized their business. Not to say that Starbucks was in that same boat, but this is just one of those things that has become a phenomenon everywhere. There's pumpkin spice flavored everything. I was telling my producer, Miranda, that I bought some pumpkin spice flavored pancake batter not too long ago. Yeah. There's been the more nor sort of normal things like candles and air fresheners that are pumpkin spice scented, but you also see things like dog treats and like <laughs> toilet paper. Really, you know, there's been the dogs are asking for the it. internet about those really weird ones. Like, I don't know that my dog is excited for October to roll around, but <laughs> right. those options are out there. And so, yeah, it, it's sort of a cottage industry unto itself now. And it really ramped up in more recent years. It's like, it was, as we said, it's been around 15 years, but there was other companies, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, that began releasing their own pumpkin coffee drinks and Starbucks had to ramp up their advertising just to start competing. And then that's kind of where everything blew up. Even though it's been out for 15 years, I feel like the pumpkin spice latte is more of a recent phenomenon. And you're not crazy to think that because they really, yeah, they ramped it up in 2012 when everyone started competing to sort of remind everybody, hey, like we came with this first. We own the pumpkin market, the pumpkin flavor market, and don't you dare try to compete. And that's in 2012 is where you started to see the Twitter handle, the hashtag, the Tumblr, all these huge social media efforts. And they also did a lot of corporate promotions where fans who really wanted to get to the pumpkin spice latte earlier could enter the scavenger hunts and get codes and go to their local stores and where they could compete to have the latte come to their city first, like really great marketing ideas that, again, just really ramp up excitement for the launch of the PSL. You know, it's funny as I do enjoy the pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks. I'm not a huge fan of all the crazy other pumpkin spice stuff that has come out as a result of the big phenomenon, but I still love the OG. When the spice flavoring is done poorly, it's pretty bad. <laughs> so it only makes you appreciate the latte more. So I, I bet Starbucks actually doesn't mind. Last thing, what do we know is actually in their recipe? The pumpkin spice topping, the thing that goes on top of the whipped cream is cinnamon, ginger, nutmeg, and clove. And then their sort of secret sauce, well, it's not so secret. The pumpkin spice sauce is sugar, condensed milk, pumpkin puree, and some natural flavors and vegetable juice for color. But yeah, the pumpkin puree, that was a special moment. It wasn't always in there, but now it is, which is just kind of bizarre to think that there's pureed squash in your drink. But there it is. It's real. Right. All right. Well, it is officially the autumn season now that the pumpkin spice latte has come out and a week earlier than they usually did, by the way. I can't help but think that that was a bit of a business decision. Oh, too. Yeah. If you could make an extra couple million, why wouldn't you? Right. Caitlin okay. Mensa, reporter for Mike. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.